Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Reading the press, what is clear is that everyone is now an expert on emerging markets. So let's bring in an expert on emerging markets, the man who wrote that line, Tim Ash, Blue Bay Asset Management, Senior EM Sovereign Strategist. Tim, good morning to you. Always great to catch up with you. Tell us what's really going on. Good morning. Yeah, I mean, everyone is negative. Um, you know, unfortunately, I've only done emerging market 30 years, so so I'm a bit of a novice and I learn every day something new. But but the reality is that, you know, there's a lot of headlines around big EM countries, you know, the Brazils, Argentinas, Russia, South Africa, etc., that have their individual problems. But you know, a lot of EM is doing fine, and uh, you know, growth's holding up okay. Uh, commodity prices are fine. China's doing okay, and for the bulk of EM, you know, that's kind of okay. And you know, top down, if you look at kind of systemic problems across EM, I mean, you're kind of struggling. I mean, I, I look at ratios. The, 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 you know, this is important. I mean, if you think of things like external debt GDP, general government debt GDP, current account deficits. I mean, just yeah. imagine this. All the focus on current account deficit countries like Turkey in aggregate across emerging markets, the average current account deficit is 0.9% of GDP. Very moderate, right? Yeah. There's a lot of EMFX movement at the moment. Currencies are coming in a lot of pressure because countries do have big external financial requirements and FX adjustment is part of that process. But actually, EMFX adjustment, what should make you concerned is countries with a lot of gross external debt. And again, the ratio yeah. of gross external debt to GDP across EM in aggregate is only 30%. That's pretty moderate. This all sounds have- yeah. This all sounds great. And a lot of people have been saying this for almost a year now. And the route that we've seen has deepened. And, you know, I saw this interesting chart yesterday looking at the decline in the central bank assets at the four biggest central banks paired with the average yield on local currency emerging markets debt. And the sell-off correlates with a decline in assets at the big central banks. I mean, couldn't you say that's all fine and good, but the same hand that giveth taketh away now with the pullback of some of the central banks? No, absolutely. I mean, look, the the the, the sell-off is partially driven by Fed tightening, uh, strong dollar. Uh, you know, EM got got ahead of itself earlier in the year. Was expensive. We're seeing an adjustment. The plus for me is that, say, unlike previous systemic crises in EM, say, Asia 97 to 2002, where you had fixed exchange rates, central banks fighting that with using FX reserves, burning FX reserves. Actually, this time around, central banks have been pretty orthodox, right? I mean, essentially, they're letting currencies go. That does the adjustment on current account and external finance. And they're raising rates, which is kind of what they should do to, 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 uh, to address, the, the, the obviously, the pass-through that comes from, from FX weakening. So, you know, FX adjustments, you know, it's painful. It grabs the headlines. Some of yeah. the moves have been very big. But it's part of the adjustment process. And actually, it's creating value. And rates going higher means you're getting nominal and real carry again in EM, which I think eventually will bring people back in. Tim, how do you draw a distinction between a crisis and an aggressive adjustment of price? <laughs> well, you know, a crisis. I mean, at the moment, it, it, it look. I mean, I think, you know, you've had so many big emerging markets with challenges, as, as I mentioned. And, you know, top down, I don't, I don't see a systemic problem in EM. But as with Asia, you know, if you go back to that period, 97 to 2002, we had Czech, we had Thailand, we had Asia, we had uh, uh, Russia, Turkey. Argentina, Brazil. I mean, it was over a pit. Everyone was passing a baton to each other. And that's, I guess, the risk. 
Um, that said, you know, look, Argentina has gone to the IMF. It's trying to solve its problems. Its policy response is pretty orthodox. Turkey, hopefully, finally, the central bank on September 13 will have smelled enough Turkish coffee <laughs> that they actually do what everyone has been telling them for a year to do, which is tighten policy. Uh, if they do that, you know, valuations on Lira look very interesting. Rebalancing is happening. So you need a couple yeah. of these countries to turn around if that happens. I think the mood, mood around the end will turn. You know, Tim, one thing that I'm struck by is some of the losses, particularly the actively managed emerging market debt funds. 7%, 8%, 9% losses in the past month. And I'm talking about some of the biggest names out there that have been managing this money. And I just have to wonder, you know, retail investors looking at this who've poured money into emerging markets – might get skittish, might withdraw. You're already seeing this to some extent on the peripheries. To what extent could a technical issue like that, outflows, really drive this, regardless of whatever Turkish coffee uh, they wake up and smell? <laughs> well, it's it's a very valid point. Uh, you know, contagion, you know, people suffering risks in Argentina, uh, move on to, I mean, the, the problems in South Africa probably are related to, to Argentina. Argentina was a very owned uh, position. Uh, people like the story. Because, you know, the, the Argentinians are finally doing what they need to do. Uh, and South Africa was, again, an own story. And I, I think people, you know, uh, connected the dots there. Um, what I would say is in the end, look, think about this. In the last 20 years, uh, EM, uh, the share of EM in global GDP has basically doubled to around 40%, right? And I think in the end, structurally, most investors are not really invested in EM, right? I mean, it's very peripheral. And I think, you know, over the longer term, people still need to put more money into EM. And this is a great opportunity because yeah. currencies have adjusted big time. Remember, a, a lot of noise around emerging markets, right? And, right. and I th the question previously was about crisis. Actually, we haven't had a credit event, a big EM credit event in EM so far. Yeah. Right? It can happen, <laughs> certainly. But so far, you know, currencies adjusted. This is part of this. This is what should happen. And, and we haven't seen a big EM rollover, right? And I think yeah. that's really, really encouraging. So, Tim, I think that some people might be listening to this and they'll say, someone who manages emerging markets funds is recommending that people put more money into emerging markets funds. I'm wondering, from your perspective, what are you buying right now and how much personal conviction do you have that this is a good buying opportunity? Well, you know, at the moment, we are pretty neutral because we are waiting for some of those big countries to turn around. I mean, we're waiting for a resolution with Argentina in terms of the IMF. We think that's coming. Uh, you know, we think that Turkey, you know, uh, certainly has some very good corporates, some very good banks. They're working really, really hard to turn this story around. We need the right policy action at the top, from the top down, from central bank, basically, and that I think will will give a a, a green signal also in Turkey. Um, uh, you know, South Africa is, you know, it's been a contagion story. Um, in the end, you know, there is a there is a deflation rate uh, rate story there. The growth data came in very bad. That that you know, currency is weak. Uh, some great opportunities in in South Africa local rates now that you know value has been created. So I mean, look, it, it's all it's selective. It's about knowing the owning these country stories, knowing them really really well, feeling comfortable with them, and finding the tur turning point. And yeah, uh, there are some wonderful opportunities being created this year. Remember, I mean, this is really part of EM investing, right? I mean, you know, it's uh, it, it can be a volatile asset class. You know, we've had a couple of fantastic years. We've seen a bit of pushback. Uh, but in the end, do, have you got to be an EM because it's such a big uh, part of the global economy? The answer is yes, right? You can't really yeah. ignore this asset class anymore. 
and and I guess these are the kind of times that you know uh, you know you've got to show a bit of durability and endurance and 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 opportunities are being created. Tim Ash, great to catch up with you, Blue Bay Asset Management Senior EM Sovereign Strategist, one of the experts out there. In the House, big tech companies. Yesterday, they were actually in the Senate, and they were answering questions. And uh, right now, I'm looking at NASDAQ leading the declines, but Facebook and Twitter shares largely unchanged ahead of the open. Um, do we care about these hearings? I mean, do do, do think- I care about yeah. these hearings? They were interesting. Let's ask someone else. Chris Morangi, uh, Gabelli Funds Co-Chief Investment Officer, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Chris, should we care about these? Well, yesterday was a real three-ring circus in uh, Washington between the Kavanaugh hearings, the op-ed, and these hearings. Um, a normal day. A normal day. Uh, and this comes in the context, of course, of uh, Trump going after uh, Google in, on Twitter and Bernie Sanders introducing the Stop Bezos Act. So big tech is, uh, one could say, under under siege. But it has been for a while. I mean, been. is there anything that kind of came out of yesterday? That no, I don't really... think so. And okay. I think the fact that Google didn't show up and had a little placard on their empty chair was indicative of, of what they think of these hearings. But I, I, th- <laughs> I think ultimately, listen, radio was regulated, this medium, in 1934. Yeah. Over the over the uh, post-World War II uh, era, lots of regulations in place to limit the voice of any particular broadcast television network owner. And we're just catching up now in the internet age. And so there will be more regulation, more requirements on the uh, on the part of the uh, internet companies, and that's going to have a cost associated with it. Why aren't we celebrating a company as successful as Amazon in this country. Why aren't the politicians celebrating this? This is a huge success story. The envy of most of the world. It, it, it is, uh, but it's it's a big company with a lot of influence, and um, those companies tend to be targeted by politicians. Um, so interestingly, obviously, that it comes from uh, the left, um, and uh, you know, the, and the right, a, and the right. <laughs> Which is what's which which is what makes well, it interesting. But you know, you mentioned Google. You mentioned that little placard and how they felt about the hearings. Google shares are actually down nearly a percent ahead of the open today. Yeah. Uh, Facebook and Twitter largely flat. Do you think that that's significant, or is this just sort of noise? I, I think that's noise at this point. Um, you know, clearly uh, Google survived the privacy regulation regime in uh, Europe pretty well, and I think the 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 end game here is that the companies with scale like Google and Facebook and even Twitter, are going to be the ones who are best able to put in the systems to comply with whatever Washington wants. And they're going to be further entrenched by regulation. Chris, you help run Gabelli Funds. That's a lot of money. When you look at the tech sector right now, is there any reason why you wouldn't allocate capital to that sector based on a risk of regulation somewhere, somehow in the future? Well, listen, I I think... uh, it is just one element of the things that we look at. Um, you know, we invest, we have invested for many, many years, decades in the cable sector. And the biggest risk to the cable sector, the distrib- distribution industry, has been, always will be regulation. Uh, and that's just something that you have to digest and, and uh, see if it's accounted for in the in the multiples. So right now, given the fact that you have a lot of big uh, analysts saying that things look a little heady, maybe time to take chips off the table. What's the biggest opportunity that you see right now? Yeah. So listen, uh, you know, the... The extended fang, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, and Apple are collectively 4.4 trillion. Uh, it's like 15% of the S&P. They've accounted for about half of the gains in the S&P so far this year. Um, 
you know, those companies, I think, in aggregate are probably a little bit ahead of themselves. Among them, there are probably better buys, like, in my view, Google than, uh, than say, Amazon. Um, but, you know, beyond that, we, we, we have uh, other areas that we look at. We like the cable sector. We, we think there's going to be consolidation amongst broadcast television networks. So that's an interesting area uh, amongst others. Chris Morangi, great to catch up with you today. Great. Thanks for dropping by the studio. Cabelli Funds, co-CIO. Big news of the day is not in markets, which are nearly flat, as Jonathan Farrow has pointed out today on several occasions. Um, it's really on the D.C. It's on the D.C. front in that editorial, the whodunit, as you put it, uh, John. And Kevin's really joining us now, chief Washington correspondent. Kevin, this anonymous editorial in The New York Times, written ostensibly by someone close to the president, saying that he basically is uh, on the cusp of incompetency. What's the fallout this morning? What's the mood? Good morning, Lisa. The fallout just within the, <clears throat> the last hour, Vice President Mike Pence's office releasing a statement saying that the vice president was not one of the people behind this New York Times bombshell anonymous op-ed. So the vice president taking himself out of the equation. Meanwhile, the New York wait, Times... Wait, 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 Kevin. Hold on one second. Does that actually effectively take him out of the equation? I mean, these are words you don't want to say. I did not write an editorial about you, my boss, saying that you were incompetent. Sorry, what's your question? So my question is, does that actually take him out of the equation? I mean, is, are we going to basically see everybody in the administration just put out statements saying that they are uh, not the author of this report? Of this well, that's really what they're facing now at this particular point is, is that there's a lot of questions as to who wrote it. So the, the vice president felt that he needed to put out a statement he did within the last hour. Meanwhile, the New York Times also confirming what White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said, which is essentially the gender of this person is a male. So a lot of speculation this morning, the White House doubling down, criticizing the New York Times, uh, supporters of uh, or critics, supporters of the Times, critics of, of the president are arguing that this is a White House on the brink of collapse. At the moment, Kevin, it, it seems to be an internal crisis. We now, apparently, according to the writer of this op-ed, have an administration that is governed by some anonymous unelected officials that are trying to stop the president from doing what he wants to do. Is that essentially what we have now, Kevin? That's absolutely correct. And in fact, when you talk to sources inside of the administration, they argue, hey, wait a minute, we've been saying this all along. This is the deep state type of conspiracy. On the flip side of that, you have centrist Republicans as well as Democrats who are absolutely concerned with just at the pace in which, if it's not Bob Woodward's book, it's now an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times. The issue or the reissuing of the 25th Amendment being talked about inside of the Beltway is not something that the administration wants to be discussing. And quite frankly, they were caught completely flat-footed. They couldn't even get a hard copy of Bob Woodward's book until hours after this was the excerpts were first made public. It shows a lack of communicative strategy, and it shows that they're caught flat-footed and completely on defense. They were brought a copy of the New York Times, the White House press office uh, op-ed. They were brought a copy of that after a competing outlet printed it out and showed it to them. So, Kevin, going forward, can President Trump demand an unmasking of this person, uh, as he has so tweeted uh, for The New York Times to do? Uh, and if not, what's his recourse? I mean, what's it going to be like in the White House over the next week or two? 
Well, look, in terms of the next 24 hours, the president has urged the New York Times to reveal its source. I would find it hard. I, I highly doubt the New York Times is going to give up this source. Republicans on Capitol Hill, supporters of the president, have actually been in lockstep with him. They've been echoing his criticisms of the Times and calling on uh, the, the Times to reveal its source. So, you know, it's caught in a back and forth. Right now, we don't have polling to understand whether or not uh, this is going to move polls at all. The president is going to hit an aggressive midterm campaign cycle. Uh, and, and hearings on Capitol Hill, I mean, there were massive hearings yesterday on Capitol Hill, but all of that eclipsed by the by the reports of chaos coming out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Kevin, I don't want to get too deep into the journalistic weeds, but something Politico wrote that I think is worth pointing out. There is a difference between protecting a source and protecting an anonymous author, isn't there? You know, I think that's a really, really good point. And, and to be honest, I think it's completely that, that political piece is really indicative, Jonathan, of a lot of the conversations that many within the industry are having last night, as well as this morning, about just how The New York Times decided uh, to, to run this. And in particular, the explanation or the lack thereof that they gave. Now, since not really giving an explanation, but just posting this, they've come out with more information about how they relied on an intermediary uh, to, to bring forth this column to them uh, to protect everything uh, about this source. But there's a lot of questions, I think, this morning that a lot of people are going to, uh, a lot of conversations that are being had this morning. And, and, uh, and quite frankly, it is a very unique situation. It's unique, number one, the content of the op-ed. Yeah. And it's unique, number two, as you point out, uh, about the Times' decision to publish something of this nature. Kevin Cirilli, a uh, really, really important uh, important insight into this. Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent, will be covering this and everything else that's been going on in Washington, D.C. for us. Thank you. Lawmakers in the U.S. Senate have raised the prospect of regulating social media platforms. And of course, this came as the bosses of Twitter and Facebook testified that Russia had used their networks to interfere in elections in the U.S. as well as other countries. Here are some of the highlights from yesterday's testimony. Russia used social media as part of, and I quote, a comprehensive and multifaceted campaign to sow discord, undermine democratic institutions, and interfere in U.S. elections and those of our allies. We were too slow to spot this and too slow to act. We believe many people use Twitter as a digital public square. They gather from all around the world to see what's happening and have a conversation about what they see. Twitter cannot rightly serve as a public square if it's constructed around the personal opinions of its makers. We believe a key driver of a thriving public square is the fundamental human right of freedom of opinion and expression. If you ask what are inauthentic accounts on Facebook, we believe at any point in time it's 3 to 4% of accounts. If we determine that uh, people were subject to any um, falsehoods or manipulation of any sort, we do need to provide them the full context of that, and this is an area of improvement for us and something that we're going to be diligent to fix. I'm deeply disappointed that Google, one of the most influential digital platforms in the world, chose not to send its own top corporate leadership to engage this committee. 
All right, let's bring in Bloomberg's Sarah Fryer, usually based in San Francisco, but joining us today from Washington. Sarah, it seems like uh, Twitter, Facebook committed to trying to get better to explain how their algorithms, their automated systems work and block certain content. They all agreed to work harder together. What is the next step, though, in terms of actually doing something concrete? Well, this is this is sort of the culmination of a lot of investigation that the Senate Intelligence Committee has done into this issue with the companies, and I think maybe one of the more constructive steps, because now the senators are very educated looking at this, and they're telling the tech companies, you need to provide more transparency for your users. When you're talking to a bot on Twitter, you should be able to know that you're talking to a bot. When you've been contacted by a campaign on Facebook that you may not see is run by a foreign agent, you should be able to know that. There should be more immediate feedback for the user in the moment and not months later saying, oh, we found this, this happened to you. Uh, and, and the companies say that that's going to be very difficult to deliver on. Uh, Twitter even said that it's difficult for them to know what's, what the difference between a bot account and a human account is. They also have to work on issues like user verification to verify their identities. Um, they have to figure out what to do about um, a lot of the ways that people interact with their service. It, in terms of abuse and harassment and people's reporting of that, which is a very uh, burdensome system for those people who are the victims. Yeah, and speaking of ways of that users interact with the service, there was a recent Pew survey, Sarah, that found that only 9% of Facebook users have downloaded their personal data from the company. But among the, that group, those who did, 47% deleted the Facebook app from their phone. 79% elected to adjust their privacy setting after downloading their data. So users are taking action and making some changes once they realize the extent to which Facebook has their data. We're starting to see some of that show up in the results. Um, to what extent do you see the companies really coming back with new offerings or new ways to manage this potential exodus? Well, the company is still growing. Facebook is still growing globally, and I really think that that's important to keep in mind here, that, that Facebook is not just the U.S. market. Yes, it's the most lucrative market, but it's not the company's future. And then the company also owns these other properties, like Instagram, for example, which is popular globally, just hit a billion users. They have WhatsApp. They have Messenger. So the company, what's concerning here for investors is the company is going to have to figure out ways to grow beyond its main cash cow, which is the Facebook newsfeed and advertising there. One of the reasons is because people are a little bit disenchanted with it now, but the other reason is that it's just so big around the world that there isn't much more room for it to grow. All right, Sarah Fryer, thank you so much for joining us. Bloomberg Tech Reporter, usually based in San Francisco, San Francisco with us today from Washington. Technology companies have been driving a lot of the dynamism that we've seen in the United States economy over the past five years, certainly in the stock markets. And the question I have is whether that can really continue given the saturation of smartphones and whether uh, and the high valuations. And I'm wondering whether anything in the hearings yesterday on Capitol Hill informed investors' opinion about that. Um, let's bring in someone. 
who knows about that was monitoring Gene Munster, who is Loop Ventures Management uh, Managing Director and co-founder. Gene, thank you so much for being with us. Is there anything that you took away from these hearings that you think uh, is important or, or crucial for investors going forward in terms of regulation and the potential in the tech sector? Well, I think for Twitter investors, they have to understand that there's going to be more spending related to some of the governance that Facebook has already put into place. So Facebook has talked over the last nine months about significantly increasing like an order of like a billion dollars related to spending on 20,000 new employees and new tools to try to make the platform more transparent. So I think that a Facebook investor, there probably wasn't a lot of uh, real substance from yesterday from Twitter, and Twitter shares reacted more negatively to Jack Dorsey's uh, endorsement that they need to spend more money on the platform. There could be another shoot a drop when they report their September quarter, when they actually give some more uh, guidance related to that spend. And then last, Google. It's important to kind of roll back the tape and see exactly why they weren't there. I think that the headlines are that Google decided not to show up. That is not, not in fact true. They offered a low-level person, but the Senate felt snubbed by that and said, unless it's Larry Page, we don't want anybody. Hmm. But that still begs the question uh, for Google. They have some uh, questions to answer around accounts in YouTube, because remember, YouTube requires accounts to impact, and there's obviously some influencing that can go on there. So look for more to come from, from Google. I think it's really interesting what you're saying about Twitter spending more money. And I think that that is actually the most informative thing I've heard so far in terms of why the shares uh, saw more weakness than Facebook. That said, Facebook uh, is facing shrinking margins, Gene. And, and there was a there was a great story today on the Bloomberg talking about how, in general, the, the sentiment has been clear. They're going to have to spend more. So do you think that investors are perhaps underestimating how much Facebook is going to have to spend going forward? I think on the spending side, investors generally have a good handle, in part because the company has a history of saying they're going to spend a certain amount and actually come in a little bit below that. So I don't think that there's another um, another leg down in terms of how much spending they're doing. I do believe there's a fundamentally bigger question about Facebook. And keep in mind, I'm old. I'm 47. So this is not my world. But I do believe that the world is not a better place for Facebook. And the way that that plays out is Facebook is coming up with new products to try to make it better. For example, groups that they announced on May 1st or dating apps. But that's at the cost of them adding more transparency to the actual how their users are being monetized. And as these new transparency tools roll through, they do have a negative impact on engagement. And so what that means is, you, we were just talking about the, the, the expense side of the ledger, but yeah. on the top line, the engagement side could be impacted. Gene, I've got to say, um, Michael Barr and Pim Fox in the studio with us, yeah. who didn't take kindly to your I'm old, I'm 47 line. I'm Pim, sure there were Pim a bunch Fox, of listeners Pim too. Fox is, Pim Fox is dying. What does that make well, you Well, I mean, I don't know. I got my horse outside. I better go right over and talk to Gene Munster right now and see if my dial phone still works. A bunch of uh, Don't take mine, either. <laughs> <laughs> got to say, I'm really happy that Gene's with us today. And I'm really disappointed because I've got to run away to TV. Gene's going to stick with us. And I'm sure you can talk about Amazon and Tesla and everything Age. else. Well, yeah, there's so much coming up with Gene Munster of Loop Ventures Management, Managing Director and Co-Founder. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.